0: Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, today we're going to be going to continue our short series through the shortest books of the Bible with the book of Philemon. So if you'll open to the book of Philemon. And the title of this sermon is Transformed Gospel Relationships. Well, like last week, we're going to do the whole book in one sermon. And to a certain extent, I think this is the best way to teach a New Testament letter. Uh, I think sometimes we forget that these books are actually handwritten letters to actual people. I don't know about you, but when I get a letter in the mail, I don't often read the first couple of lines and then put it down until the following week (laughs) to come back to it and read the next couple of lines. No we tend to read the whole thing. Now, don't get me wrong, going slowly and methodically through small chunks of the Bible is a great thing. And with most longer books, it's necessary and beneficial. But with letters like this, it's great to be able to read them like letters from beginning to end. So let's do exactly that. Let's dive in and read this Letter written from the Apostle Paul to Philemon and to the church in his home. Philemon 1 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord, So something I want us to see from the very beginning this morning is that this letter is full of people, 12 different people in 25 verses to be exact. Why do I point this out? Simply to show us that the gospel is lived out in real relationships in the church. We talk a lot about the one another's of the New Testament here at Santa Cruz Baptist. Baptist. Do you know how easy those are on paper and in our minds? Love one another. Awesome, that's easy. Check, got it. Show hospitality to one another. Yep, I got this. Forgive one another. Easy peasy, as Renee Olenberger would say. But it gets a lot harder when you add real names of real people to those statements, doesn't it? It gets even harder when the names of those real people are sinners who have wronged you in some way. This is where the rubber meets the road. Paul isn't interested in theoretical Christianity. What I want us to see in this letter is that Paul's applying the gospel to real-life, sticky, hard situations. That's where you'll find out if you actually believe the gospel or not. So, who are the main players involved here in this letter? Look at verse one Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So, first, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who says he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. While that's certainly metaphorically true of him, in this instance, it's quite literal. Most believe that Paul's in prison or house arrest in Rome while writing this letter. Apparently, Timothy is with him, possibly as his scribe. Two, Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So Paul is writing most significantly to this guy named Philemon. Who's he? Well, from what we can piece together from the context here, he's a wealthy man in Colossa, like the letter of Colossians, who hosts a church in his home. It seems like Philemon crossed paths with Paul in Ephesus as a fellow worker when Paul was there in Acts 19. Most believe that Apia is Philemon's wife and that Archippus is the pastor of the house church that meets in Philemon's home. We see Paul referencing him in Colossians 4, 17. Now, besides Paul and Philemon, the other main character in this letter is a man by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus. While there are definitely different theories of how to piece this story together, the primary view is that Onesimus is a runaway slave of Philemon's who took off to Rome after possibly stealing from Philemon. Onesimus crosses paths with Paul in prison in Rome. He hears the gospel, repents and believes in Jesus, and his whole life is transformed. So, what does a truly converted or transformed life look like? That's what this letter is all about. And in this, we'll see three different angles. What does a truly converted look, look, life look like? There's someone who needs forgiveness. There's someone who needs to forgive. And there's someone who encourages forgiveness. Now, before we go any farther, I've got to deal with the issue of slavery in the Bible. the Bible, Very briefly. Mark Dever writes this. He says In the world of the New Testament, slavery was not race specific, as we think of slavery in our own American experience, nor were slaves limited to certain types of jobs. In most Hellenistic cities of Paul's day, the majority of the working population were probably considered slavers, or or what might be called indentured servants. So the fact that Onesimus was a slave actually does not tell us that much. He could have been what we call a, quote, professional, since many doctors and teachers were indentured servants in the ancient world. So when we think of chattel slavery, which the Bible would condemn, that isn't exactly what's going on here in Philemon. There's so much more that we could say on that subject, but that's not really the main point of this letter as a whole. But for now, we know that the Bible sees every human being as an image-bearer of God, equal in value, being, and worth. We know Colossians 3.11, don't we? Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all we know that we know galatians 3:28 and 29 where paul writes there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one in christ jesus and if you are christ then you are abram's offspring heirs according to the promise in other words we're all equal at the foot of the cross There's no distinctions when it comes to salvation in union with Christ. We know that even in Hebrew slavery, there were clear rules for how long a slave could be held and how they were to be treated. We know that people typically entered slavery, not because of race, but because of poverty. It often kept them from starvation and death. All of this, all of this, is very different than the race-based African slave trade that we all tend to think of when we hear the word slave. Christians like William Wilberforce were 100% right and heroic in scripturally arguing against slavery and seeing to its demise. And that's not the type of slavery that Onesimus was under here. That's what I want us to see. Now, Let's follow Paul's line of thought in the letter. After introductions, look at verses four and five. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. First of all, Paul clearly prays for Philemon regularly, and he's thanking God for him. Why? Because he's heard reports of two things, Philemon's faith in Christ and of his love for all the saints. Do you see that? Do you see that these things go together? If you have faith in Christ, you will love the saints. Who are the saints? It's the word hagios, or holy ones. Who are the holy ones? Christians. Christians. And to be clear, Christians are called holy ones not because we're righteous in and of ourselves, but because Jesus' righteousness has been placed on us through faith. So God looks at us and considers us holy. So Paul recognizes the connection here. Philemon is a Christian and loves other Christians because of that. To claim that you have faith in Christ while not loving the saints is an oxymoron. It's a dangerous deception to believe that that's even possible. Look what 1 John 3.10 says. 1 John 3.10. He writes, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Faith in Christ and love of the saints always goes together. And Paul has more to say about Philemon's faith. Look at verse 6. Look at this. He says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This is awesome. Uh, We might first look at this and think that it's about evangelism. He's sharing his faith. He's, He's telling others about Jesus. And it's growing his knowledge of Christ. And make no mistake about it, if you're telling people about Jesus, it'll grow your knowledge of what's ours in Christ. That's true. But that's not what's being said here. This word that's translated sharing, it's the Greek word koinonia, or fellowship, or partnership. One commentator writes that it's a catch-all word for any kind of giving and receiving of blessings and benefits enjoyed as a result of faith in Christ. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying, Philemon, through your fellowship of faith, or your sharing of your faith with the saints, you will grow in the knowledge of Christ. It's actually the best way to grow in the knowledge of Christ. This is revolutionary, church. First off, your faith in Christ isn't just for you, it's for others. You're called to share it. The Holy Spirit grows the fruit of the Spirit in your life through faith. Then, you're like a fruit stand, and the fruit of your faith gets shared with other Christians in the church as you fellowship with them. Second, as you do this, you'll grow. It becomes, as Paul says, effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I want to make sure that we understand this how do we gain knowledge how do we gain knowledge some lean toward intellectual investigation others toward mystical experience both have their place but paul is saying that sharing your faith serving the saints from your faith is effective for the full knowledge of what's ours in christ True Christianity is a team sport. It's not individualistic. So be involved. Share your faith with real people, with real names. Even when those people aren't perfect. It'll grow your knowledge of Christ. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Paul says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because... The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Man, that's good. Do you see that? As you share the fruit of your faith, you, Christian, refresh the hearts of the saints. I want each of you to ask the question today and often Whose heart can I refresh today through sharing my faith? Think of names. Think of actions. Whose heart can I refresh today through sharing my faith? So Paul begins with spiritual encouragement. Then he begins his appeal for spiritual maturity. Look at verses 8 and 9. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man or elder, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. He's saying, I could command you to do what I'm about to try and persuade you of. And before I make my appeal, I'll just remind you that I'm older than you. I'm your elder. So, what's his appeal? His appeal is found in verses 10 through 16. First of all, how unreal is it that Paul's in prison and still seeing conversion through sharing the gospel? That's what's being said in verse 10. He led Onesimus to the Lord in prison. I think if I were put in prison for following Christ, I might be tempted to just wallow in pity. Lord, I followed you and now I'm in prison. Woe is me. Lord, I think I've done enough. I'm going to sit on the sideline for a while and ride this one out. Not Paul. He's in prison, and he's sharing the gospel effectively for conversion. Side note here. Do you see the sovereignty and providence of God in this? Onesimus runs away from Philemon. He most likely steals from him. He heads to Rome to be as far away from Philemon as possible. It is a long distance from Colossa to Rome. And it just, he just so happens to cross paths with Paul, a Christian who actually led Philemon to the Lord. Do you see the sovereignty and providence of God in this? Omnesimus hears the gospel and experiences true life transformation. So I'll ask us again, What does true life transformation look like? First, it appears that Onesimus began serving Paul in prison, helping him with whatever he needed help with. Then, he knows that he needs to make something right. He stole from Philemon and ran away, abandoning his obligation. He's AWOL, absent without leave. He knows that he needs to make restitution and to be reconciled to his now brother in Christ. But this is dangerous. Really dangerous. Understand this. In that time, Philemon would have been completely within the law to put Onesimus to death for stealing and running away. He could have done that. If he felt particularly generous... He would have spared Onesimus' life, but had his forehead branded to signal to everyone that Onesimus was a thief and a runaway. Going home to face the music on this one wasn't a light thing. Onesimus is risking his life to do the right thing in going back to Philemon. One commentator points out that there's three needs that Onesimus has here. Number one, He needs to be forgiven. He needs to be forgiven. Understand that on this earth, there's both vertical and horizontal planes. The moment Onesimus became a Christian, the moment that he repented for his sins and believed in Jesus Christ, he was forgiven vertically by God the Father, accomplished through Christ the Son and applied by the Spirit. But horizontally, he still needed to be forgiven by Philemon on a human level. Not a saving level, but on a human level. He needs to be forgiven. Second, he needed to make restitution. Understand that becoming a Christian doesn't mean that since you're covered by God's grace for your sin, that you don't have to right wrongs or that you don't have to live justly on this earth quite the opposite. Onesimus needs to pay Philemon back. He's certainly stolen labor and probably property too, but he probably doesn't have the ability to pay. Third, he needs to be valued. He needs to be valued. Notice that Paul calls Onesimus his child, his very heart, and a brother. He's saying to Philemon, God values Onesimus. I value Onesimus. I need you to value him too. So, number one, transformed gospel people seek forgiveness and restitution if they've sinned or wronged anyone. But there's two other parties involved here, aren't there? Let's think about this from Philemon's point of view. If Onesimus needs to seek forgiveness. Philemon, on the other hand, has the opportunity to forgive. Look at verse 17. Paul asks Philemon to receive Philemon as he would receive Paul. How would he receive Paul? Probably with hospitality and joy. Paul's the one who led him to the Lord. He'd be excited about it. He's asking Philemon to welcome back this man who's sinned against him and stolen from him. Second, Paul's asking Philemon to transfer the debt that Onesimus owes. Do you see that? He says, charge that to my account. I will repay it. Notice that Paul doesn't say, just let it go. Forgive and forget. No, he doesn't say that at all. In forgiveness... Someone always absorbs the debt. It doesn't just disappear into thin air. If you steal my car and then go and wreck it into a pole, someone has to pay the debt that's owed. Either you will pay it, or I will. It doesn't just disappear. More on this later. But Paul's saying, Philemon stole from you labor and property. He can't pay for it, but that debt doesn't just disappear. Put it on my tab. I'll pay for it, Paul says. So Philemon is being asked to welcome Onesimus and to transfer his debt. He's also being asked in verse 16 to care for Onesimus, not as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother. Can we just acknowledge that that's a lot? That's a huge ask. And just like with Onesimus, the stakes are high. First, consider Philemon's reputation in Colossa. He's a well-off man who clearly had a well-run estate. Can you imagine how the news of this would fly around town? Over in the town square. Did you hear that Philemon forgave and restored that runaway slave that stole from him? Did you hear that? Who does he think he is? He'll encourage our slaves to do the same. Not only did he not execute him, he didn't even brand him. That guy's going to kill the well oiled economy in this town. Then consider Philemon's own household. What about the other servants who didn't steal and didn't run away? How's that going to sit with them? How's that going to encourage them towards obedience? If we we tell Philemon that we're converted to Christianity too, will will he set us free? Do you see how much is on the line here with Paul's request? Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. Philemon must forgive. He must forgive. First, because he's a Christian, and Christ forgave him at great cost. Second, because Philemon was a leader in the church. Everyone's looking to him to see how he'll handle this. He's an example to everyone else of what forgiveness and reconciliation looks like. The stakes are high here, but Philemon has an unbelievable opportunity to put the gospel on display. Again, while it's going to cost him something in the public square, that's going to happen. Can you imagine the conversations following this decision? Philemon's out in the public square. Someone confronts him, says, Philemon, why in the world did you do this? And he responds, can I tell you why? Yes, you're right. Onesimus deserved death. And so do you and I. We deserve death at the hands of our heavenly master. But he forgives us in Christ, taking the debt that we owe upon himself. He absorbs the just wrath of God that we should get, and he pays for it in full that's what God did for me. And so in response to that, my relationships are changed. I forgave Onesimus and restored him as a brother. Talk about the gospel being made visible. So number one, transformed gospel people seek forgiveness and restitution if they've wronged or sinned against anyone. Second, Transformed gospel people give forgiveness to those who have wronged them and sinned against them. And there's one more party involved here, isn't there? Paul. Onesimus needs forgiveness. Philemon needs, needs to give forgiveness. And Paul encourages forgiveness. Paul faithfully shared the gospel with Onesimus, became his father in the faith. He cared for him. Then encouraged him to go back and seek forgiveness. He urged him to do the right thing. On the other side, Paul's writing a letter. He's urging Philemon to forgive and to do the right thing. He's orchestrating this whole exchange from prison in Rome. He's appealing for Christian maturity on all sides. Look what he does. First off, remember where we started this letter. Paul encouraged Philemon in his faith. He said, Philemon, I hear great things. I hear that you love the saints there in your church. I hear that your faith isn't your own, but it's being shared with all of the people in the church. I hear that you're refreshing the hearts of all the church members there. Great job. Now... Guess what, Philemon? I met this guy. He heard the gospel. He became a Christian. He's now a saint. His name? His name is Onesimus. I need you to do what you're already doing with everyone else in the church, but to Onesimus also. You're already applying the gospel to so many other relationships. Now I need you to apply it in an even harder, more sticky situation. I need you to be a welcoming father to the prodigal son, not the elder brother. I need you to kill the fattened calf, receive him with arms wide open, and throw him a party, because that's like Jesus. That's true faith. To claim that you have faith in Christ while not loving the saints is an oxymoron. Paul is even artful in his use of puns. Look at verse 11. Paul writes, Formerly he, meaning Onesimus, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. This word useless is the word akrestos. When spoken, it would sound almost identical to "akristos" or christless. So he's making a play on words here. Then the name Onesimus actually means useful. So Paul's saying, Philemon, when Onesimus was christless, he was useless to you, akrestos. But now... He can be who God created him to be, Onesimus, useful. He can fulfill his God-given identity and calling. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. My very heart, Paul says. This word for heart isn't cardia, which is the normal word for heart. It's the word splachna. It's a word that means internal organs, bowels, gut. Paul's saying, I love this man at gut level. He's very dear to me. And Paul does all of this with respect, even though he's being a little pushy. Look at verse 14. He's saying, I didn't have the right to keep Onesimus here. I'm not going to forcefully make you do anything here. Instead, this needs to be of your own accord. I believe you can, and I believe you will do this because of the gospel. And I love verse 15. Look what Paul writes. He says, for this perhaps, said a little sarcastically, this perhaps is why he, meaning Onesimus, was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. He's reminding Philemon of the sovereignty of God. Hey, he went AWOL for a while, but God had better plans. God's plans were that you might have him back, not temporarily, but forever, meaning eternity in heaven. What Onesimus intended for evil, God intended for good. He used it for his purposes. And by the way, Philemon, Onesimus is now a brother in Christ. You've got to treat him like one. Finally, Paul pulls out the big guns. It appears that Paul, like most, was using a scribe, maybe Timothy, to write this letter. Until verse 19. He grabs the pen in his own hand, and in huge letters writes, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. In other words, don't miss this. This is important to me. Brother, if you do this, you'll refresh my heart, just like you have so many others in your church. And being the great leader that Paul is, He adds clear accountability in his appeal for forgiveness. Number one, did you notice that while this is a letter to Philemon, it's also written to who? To the church in his house. This letter would have been read to the whole church. They would have known exactly what Paul asked of Philemon and if he did it or not. Second, Paul told him that he'd be coming to stay. Look at verse 22. In other words, Philemon, I love you as a brother, and I'm going to check in on this. It's too important for me not to. See this. Paul wasn't the one who needed forgiveness or needed to offer forgiveness. But he played a major role in the gospel being displayed here. Number one, transformed gospel people seek forgiveness and restitution if they've sinned or wronged anyone. Number two, transformed gospel people give forgiveness to those who have wronged them and sinned against them. Finally, number three, transformed gospel people encourage forgiveness. I can confidently say that no matter who you are, you'll probably be in one of these roles at some point in your Christian life. Probably all three of them. And in those moments, you'll find out what you actually believe about the gospel. Hear this. Discipleship to Jesus isn't like chemistry or physics, where you study a course to take in information as the end goal. No. Discipleship to Jesus is much more like jiu You learn so that you can put it into practice. You learn by rolling around on the mat, trying out what you learned. Or maybe it's more like medical school. How, how strange would it be to go to medical school and, and learn a bunch of information and then say, I'm good. I'm done and yet never practice medicine. Disciples of Jesus, yes, believe in the gospel with their heads and their heart. But according to James, it's not real faith if you don't put it into practice. It's not real faith if your life doesn't produce the fruit of works. Do you see? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth, lived a perfect life. We, like Onesimus, sinned and deserve death because we sinned. We, like Onesimus, can't afford to pay the debt that we owe. But God sent his only son, Jesus, to die in our place, to take the debt that we owe, the debt that, remember, doesn't just disappear. Someone must bear the payment for our sin. And that person is Jesus Christ. Our debts were transferred to him. And his status was transferred to us. His righteousness. Because of that, we're accepted into God's household as sons. As beloved brothers. As God's own heart. Does Philemon believe all of that? Yes. Thankfully, he does. And because he does, his confession will turn into practice. Not only will he proclaim the gospel with his mouth, he'll display it with his hands and his feet. He'll live out the gospel even when it costs him dearly. Do you see that? When faith is real, it changes relationships. It transforms us into people who ask for forgiveness. It transforms us into people who give forgiveness. It transforms us into people who encourage forgiveness. And so I'll ask you this morning, do you need to practice one of these actions today? Do you need to practice one of these actions today? Look, I I know the Super Bowl is today. And I'm excited to go watch it myself. But I would encourage you to pray about this. And if the Holy Spirit's convicting you, don't sit on it. Don't wait till tomorrow. Go share the fruit of your faith. Go ask for forgiveness. Go forgive. Go encourage forgiveness. In closing, maybe you're wondering how all of this turned out. What happened between Philemon and Onesimus? Well, we don't know from this letter, but external history fills it all in. Kent Hughes writes this. Onesimus and Philemon went on to lead even more productive lives for Christ. Many believe that Philemon, in deference to Paul's expressed desire to have Onesimus back, verses 13, 14, and 20, returned him to Paul in Rome where he further developed into a great man of God. The historical evidence is most suggestive of this. Fifty years later, when Ignatius, one of the great Christian martyrs, was being transported from Antioch to Rome to be executed, he wrote letters to certain churches. In writing to Ephesus, he praised their bishop, or pastor, Onesimus, even making the same Pauline pun on his name. It appears likely that Onesimus, the runaway slave, had become, with the passing of years, the great bishop of Ephesus. This was one of the great stories of the gospel and of the church, a jewel in her crown. Philemon really believed and practiced the gospel. And so the question this morning is will we? Let's pray.